0: Trump is a more potentially ephemeral or contingent figure. You know, it's easy to say, my God, he's always going to be, MAGA's always going to be on top now. And this thing is never going to end. But, you know, one of the things I try to argue too is that MAGA and Trumpism is not bound to remain atop the right indefinitely or forever.
1: is a professor at George Washington University and author of the recent book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. Given how dire a problem the radical right is for the United States right now, it makes understanding the roots of their tactics and ideology an important project. I learned a lot from the book and enjoyed getting to know its author. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Professor Matt Dalek of GWU. Would you mind introducing
0: yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Matt Dalek. I am a historian by training. I'm also a professor at George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, which is basically a school of applied politics. I've written uh, three books. Birchers is my third book. My research interests primarily are around modern American conservatism, and questions of extremism, as well as mid-20th century liberalism. I also worked in politics for a few years as a speechwriter, but I I decided I wanted to return to teaching and research. I was full-time at the University of California Washington Center for four years before moving to GW, and I've been at GW almost a decade. Teaching there full time and and
1: writing. You are not the only historian whose last name is Dalek. That's right. Tell me about your where you grew up and what sort of family you come from.
0: Well, I grew up in Los Angeles. My dad, uh, Robert Dalek, is a longtime presidential historian. I think he's written fourteen or fifteen books. <laughs> I've so he's had, kind of a slacker. Yes. He's he's a real slacker. He's 88 and a half and is working on a, another project, another book. But I grew up in L.A. My uh, uh, dad taught at UCLA for three decades. And uh, my mom was involved in public health advocacy uh, and uh, was at various nonprofits and, and ran a um a nonprofit for a while in LA as well. A lot of times when people grow up in a household where there's a particular
1: profession, they either sort of do it or run far away from it. What was the path for you to, to, I don't know, to major in history in college and stay with that thing that your dad did to some extent. I was a a
0: torn about, about the path. I understood what my dad did. And I had seen him lecture in his lecture classes at UCLA. And, you know, I had an understanding even in, in high school that he was really a great teacher. And so, for example, I was one summer working in the library of an entertainment law firm in LA. One of the librarians in the law firm came up to me. And he said, hey, he said, are, are you related to Bob Dalek at UCLA? And I said, yeah, that's my dad. And he said, oh, he said, I took his his lecture class and the knowledge that he was dropping on me was so incredible that I had to go home to my dorm room every night and smoke marijuana. <laughs> I just I had to smoke out just to deal, just to cope with what he was telling me. And... Uh, and so, a, you know, what a, what a strange compliment. <laughs> well, you know, this was, yeah. I think he, he was in college in the 1970s, right? In UCLA. So, you know, it was an unusual compliment. I understood that my dad was having really a significant impact on hundreds, if not thousands of his students, because, you know, people would come up to me and say, your dad was my favorite professor. And so that was incredibly admirable. In college, and actually I went to Berkeley in the north, and Berkeley had, as it does now, you know, a great history department. I majored in history in part because I I felt like I knew it and I was good at it. It's like the comfort zone a little bit. I kind of knew it from my dad and 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 I was interested in it. But I was interested in humanities in general. And I, you know, to make a long story short. I graduated, I think it was 92, there was a recession, and I was looking maybe for jobs in politics, and I couldn't really find a full-time job. I applied to graduate programs, and I got in, and I got funded for a PhD program, but I was torn about pursuing that path, and I decided ultimately to finish my PhD. I decided also that I did not want to go into academia, at least right away. You know, I wanted to try... And I did that. I worked as a speechwriter for about five years. Was that for Gephardt? Mostly, but also at the Federal Communications Commission for the chairman, Bill Kennard at the time, who was a Clinton Gore appointee, and uh, for Gephardt and a little bit in the private sector for a few months. And But I slowly, and really more on my own terms, if this makes sense, gravitated back toward teaching research and writing. And I did it in part because I decided I didn't want to work in politics full time, but I was still very much interested in it. And I felt like I was better as a teacher than as a speech writer. And I that I got more pleasure from teaching, more fulfillment and meaning than from writing speeches. And that was just kind of for me, and I slowly over time you know had other ideas for op-eds, essays, and books that I wanted to write. I always appreciated that my dad had a lot of flexibility and a lot of control. And and that, of course, is one of the, the best things about academia, whereas when I was working on Capitol Hill, my life was not my own, right? No staffer's life is because you are beholden to events and outside forces. And so I think that was another a big draw for me.
1: I, I imagine you still learn something writing speeches that, that's worth sharing. What came out of that period of
0: life for you that you remember? Well, I, it was an amazing experience. And, and as I like to say, writing speeches, especially in the leader's office, with an office in the Capitol building, was probably the most exciting job I will ever have and also the most stressful. Exciting though, because I got to help draft speeches on virtually every national and international topic you can name, whether we're talking waste storage at Yucca Mountain or international nuclear nuclear arms control agreements, Medicare taxes, budget policy, you name it. And that's not to say I became an expert on any of those issues. I did not, but I got to have a a hand in them and and just kind of familiarize myself a little bit with them, as well as I got exposed to the excitement and the rush and the chaos of national politics because I was in the Capitol building on the morning of 9-11 and I was evacuated. And then I was back there the next morning on 9 12. And I got to see what unfolded over that period of time. So I think it was less about speech writing almost than it was about this larger kind of political milieu, right? For me, that was really incredible. And also just to see how, you know, things like how does a leader keep 200 plus members of a caucus with incredibly diverse districts and constituencies from all over this vast country. How does a leader like that keep them together? How do different ideological factions balance themselves out? Racial, gender, and other differences, how do those play out? You know, how does a coalition really get built and managed and sustained? that was really interesting did you get to know gebhardt uh, personally a little bit a little bit i mean i was not you know i came in in 2000 and he had been in congress i think at by that point for roughly 25 years almost 25 years most importantly he had been in leadership for well over a decade both as majority leader and minority leader and he had an amazing staff and an amazing kind of senior staff. That was a a blessing in the sense that they were very good. They knew Gephardt, they knew the house, they knew policy, and they could, in theory at least, and in practice, help me, you know, as I was kind of new to this job and new to this incredibly stressful and fast-paced position. It wasn't as if I was in an office with five other staffers. And it was a junior member of Congress, right, where you have a lot of interaction. I got to know Gephardt well enough to know that, and this was another advantage, I think, is that he was just a decent person because you hear about horror stories of, of staff working for political figures who, you know, just, just miserable, right, sounding. And everyone loved working for Gephardt. And he was incredibly calm and generous and you know, just just decent, right? A kind of unflappable, at least that was my impression of him. I worked for him for two and a half years, but it made it doable and sustainable for me.
1: Yeah, I, I imagine that when you're writing about political history in the United States, it's got to give you a little bit of an advantage to have been in the middle of politics as a practitioner. Just in the ability to envision what it's like to be making these kinds of decisions, does that feel like that
0: to you or no? Um, I would like to think so. Most professional historians who write on history, unlike political scientists, do not typically have a foray into politics where they work. Although that's not true of everyone. I mean, I know a historian, for example, who was a labor organizer for a while. So. Everyone's got a a, a different path, but whereas political scientists, they actually do fellowships on the Hill through the American Political Science Association. There's no equivalent, as far as I know, for the historical profession. I would like to think that having worked at least for a few years in politics, it makes me at least a little bit more humble. And also, when I approach, say, sources, I mean, documents, for example, primarily, giving me a slightly wider perspective, hopefully, on, and also, I think, on the randomness, right, the contingency of how politics work. I mean, there are structural forces, but it is also a fundamentally a human endeavor as well. And I think working in that environment gave me a, an appreciation for that. How that translates into my research, my writing, it's a little hard to pinpoint, but, um, but I think that's what I've taken away.
1: So how did your career lead you to GWU and the GSPM?
0: So Gephardt stepped down as as Democratic leader and uh, all of us lost our jobs. This was in, I think, early 2003. Uh, But I was also, I was ready. I'd been there two and a half years. I was ready. And I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. And as I said earlier, I slowly gravitated back toward doing my own research and writing. And then I started adjuncting as well. So I was trying to write some, some freelance pieces. I started adjuncting first at Virginia Tech in Alexandria. They have an Alexandria campus. Then at a University of Notre Dame, they have a Washington Center. And at the University of California, Washington Center. And I realized I really liked teaching. I like the kind of creativity of it. I like working with students and kind of doing what I could to help them with their skills, but also, you know, on their career paths. I like doing it in DC, which was a particularly dynamic environment. And I had an idea for another book project, which was my, my last book called Defenseless Under the Night, really about the origins of homeland security, and in particular about the struggle between Eleanor Roosevelt and Fiorella LaGuardia during World War II over what the meaning of home defense was. And I got a a full-time job. A political scientist named Bruce Kane hired me full-time to be an associate director at the UC Washington Center. And I was doing a bunch of teaching on the side. I was working on this book. I did that for four years full-time, got a lot of teaching under my belt, and then a job at the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University opened up. And it appealed to me because it would be a place where I could not just continue to teach but also where my my research and writing would be an explicit part of my portfolio, right? That that I would be expected to kind of contribute in that vein. That so was 2014 and as I said, I've been there ever since. Where did
1: the idea of writing about the John Birch Society come to you?
0: So my first book was actually on Ronald Reagan and Reagan's first campaign for governor in California in 1966. And I was interested in the rise of the right. And my advisor at Columbia was Alan Brinkley, who wrote a now famous essay called The Problem of American Conservatism, and helped to spawn... A number of really good histories of the American right. So I was always interested in the rise of the right in modern politics, what conservatism meant at different times, how social changes and upheavals shape a political environment and a landscape, and also campaigns. And then also, a historian, Kim Phillips Fine, wrote an essay in which she called for historians to do more work on extremism on the right. She may have mentioned the John Birch Society in that essay, but the Birchers were, I certainly encountered them in my work on Reagan. They were a huge presence in the 1960s, became a household name. And then, of course, with the rise of Trump, there was this huge rush by everybody, really, pundits and and journalists and historians and just interested observers to try to explain, how did Trump win the Republican nomination? And how did he win the presidency? And what does conservatism mean? And so a number of people weighed in on that. And basically, I thought I had something to say about that debate. And that the history of the Birch Society, and a history of how the Birch legacy radicalized the American right, could contribute, you know, hopefully, at least a, a small bit to that conversation. And so it, it really was a combination of, I guess, organic factors. Trump was part of it, but wanting to kind of tackle this big question and an important question about how the American right, how the Republican Party r- became radicalized, became more beholden to conspiracy theorists, became more isolationist. And nativist and all of the other developments that, that we've seen.
1: I've talked to a number of other mainly professors who have traced other themes like changes in the world, the evangelical world, or the role of the NRA in radicalizing society, or how kind of the thread of Confederate thought have have played a role. Like you said, there's a lot of work going on trying to understand this. I, of course, had heard of the John Birch Society just from reading American history and following politics. I didn't have much specific knowledge, honestly, at all. So I found this really useful to kind of pass through that same history with this different lens. But I think for people who don't know what the John Birch Society is, why don't you summarize like... Who started it and what were they up
0: to? Yeah, it's interesting because um, a number of people say to me uh, that they had some kind of direct encounter with the John Birch Society or a Bircher in the 60s. But of course, if you're under a certain age, right, you wouldn't have any reason to know the John Birch Society because they really faded by by the 70s. So the Birchers were a group Founded in December of 1958 by Robert Welch, a candy salesman, a businessman, and 11 other mostly well-to-do industrialists. The group was designed as the most action-oriented effort to root out the alleged communist conspiracy operating inside the United States, this great internal threat. And the movement grew from this small group, the small band of mostly business people or wealthy people. um, It grew to include many thousands of upwardly mobile professionals, dentists, doctors, lawyers, engineers, often suburban, often change-fearing individuals who were recruited and signed up to join chapters, basically 15 to 20 person chapters in their communities to try to take the fight to the enemy. However, that enemy was defined by the leadership and by themselves at the local level. So they took a bunch of actions like the Impeach Earl Warren campaign. They tried to stop the summit between Eisenhower and Khrushchev, support your local police, and arguing that the urban uprisings of the 60s were communist inspired and that the civil rights movement was dominated by a Russian communists, basically or communist influences. And the most famous or infamous thing and the reason why initially the birth society got so much play and so much notoriety in the early 1960s was that Robert Welch, the founder, had written a, a book, a, a letter to his friends, as he called it in which he charged that Dwight Eisenhower, the former president, was a dedicated agent of the communist conspiracy. And that was a, a, a hugely sensational charge, and it wreaked all sorts of havoc politically. But the Birchers became – they had about sixty to 100,000 members at their peak, and they became a, really a, a major force for a time as an organization in American politics. They seem to have – share a lot of tactics with some of our
1: current uh, right-wing crazies, but do you have a sense that they were drawing from further back from other examples in American history? To what degree is this like a thread that we can keep going backward on?
0: Well, you know, you raise a really interesting question and, and you mentioned earlier the NRA, the evangelical movement, the Confederacy, right? The overthrow of reconstruction. One can go back to almost any movement or any period and find some threads, I think, that resonate. Despite all the differences, there are certain, at least thematic, continuities in American life. I think unquestionably, the Birchers and the Birch leaders came out of an anti-progressive era, anti-New Deal political movement. And America First, in particular, some of the leaders of the Birchers were involved with America First. They drew on a variety of what historians sometimes refer to as this sort of older tradition of conservatism, right? An older right that was isolationist, anti-immigrant, right? More nativist, very concerned about US sovereignty, and opposed to free trade, right? And pro tariff and certainly conspiratorial ideas, whether it was about US entry into World War I or World War II. And so I think that was the most immediate. And then of course, Joe McCarthy. I mean, a lot of Birch leaders and Birchers liked, if not idolized McCarthy. They believed that the modern Republican Party had conspired to to destroy McCarthy, right? One of their heroes, as well as Robert Taft, whom Eisenhower defeated in 1952. So they they do pull from a variety of somewhat older conservative traditions and movements. But one could clearly, I mean, Welch is from North Carolina. There's a biography that that came out about him, I think, in 2022 you know, Welch does come out of the South, right? He does come from a sense of a a lost world or a world being destroyed by certain forces seen and also hidden. And one could certainly go back to the overthrow of reconstruction, the idea that racial equality is an enemy or a foreign influence, a foreign idea, and I think draw some connections at least some influences on the Birchers. I guess the last thing I'll say, though, is that the reason I picked the Birch Society, though, is that it felt to me, first of all, it was the most, I would argue, influential and visible far-right movement of the 1960s. And it felt to me as if the politics that it forged in ways that I go through in the book kind of explicit racism, uh, anti-interventionism, a more anti-establishment, apocalyptic and violent mode of politics, a conspiracy theories, and a hardline culture war politics that we can trace at least a lot of the ideas for the modern far right and the MAGA movement. We can see some of these ideas, the MAGA movement bearing the imprint of the Birchers, And so it felt to me like a a particularly influential and interesting group to explore. And then, of course, as I argue in the book, even though the Birch Society as an organization faded, its ideas did not. And its ideas sort of had an afterlife. And I try to trace that afterlife in the book. Well, what kind of innovations
1: do you think they made in terms of how to organize, how to spread their ideas, the style that you kind of are referring to of politics?
0: Well, you know, one interesting innovation that clearly is important today is the focus on school boards, school districts, what is being taught in the school, whether those those texts are Americanist, patriotic texts, or subversive socialist texts, right? And using kind of a small group of really committed volunteers devoting right immersing themselves in these struggles at the local level that they can have an, a really outsized impact and so at one point Robert Welch the the leader recommended that birch members that they run for school board or that they try to take over their school boards and so i think one innovation one interesting model is that you don't necessarily and purely have to be invested in partisan, or in this case, Republican Party electoral politics to have an impact. I think that they also, though, showed that a small group that was committed, uh, deeply devoted to an idea could have a much bigger impact than just a lot of voters, and that they could command attention, they could draw money, and donate money, energy, they could drum up votes and that that kind of organizing on the on the right on the far right could be quite effective. And just one example in terms of electoral politics, Richard Nixon in 1962 denounced the birchers pretty strongly. The birchers very much they hated Nixon for the most part and they very much supported Nixon's Republican primary opponent for California governor, a guy named Joe Shell. And Shell won about a third of the vote. And Nixon was a former vice president. And that hurt Nixon in the general election. So you know the Birchers kind of flexed their muscle in a way. And then I think the language, the apocalyptic language, the sort of violent rhetoric, the the sense that the stakes are existential. And this is, I think, an important insight that they have, that they are domestic, right? That the greatest threat to the country is this, they wouldn't put it this way, but this liberal socialistic and communist cabal that has really destroyed what it means to be an American, that it's diluted, right a, a truer version of the United States. That I think was an important political insight for mobilizing people and it certainly kind of resonates today, right? You hear Trump talking about you know the greatest threat is from the radical liberal left. Uh, uh, that's destroying the country. And we won't have a country anymore if they're in charge. I think that's a very similar. And now, obviously, their birchers weren't the only ones, but they really did. I think they forged that kind of politics in the 60s and beyond that really bequeathed a legacy to their successors.
1: When I think about sort of origins of Trump, Trumpism, I think about Wallace and Patrick Buchanan and Robertson and some of the people that you mention in the book in their intersection, but also goes back before my time to Goldwater and what do you think is the intersection? Briefly, as we go from the sixties to seventies, eighties, and onward between electoral politics and the kind of Birch ideas.
0: Well, as I try to argue in the book, Birch ideas. I say, get picked up by a host of politically even savvier successors, right? Their descendants, people like Phyllis Schlafly and groups like the Moral Majority and Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, certainly. And one thing that these groups do, these successors, not entirely, but but more so than the Birchers, is that they commit to electoral politics, in a way that the Birchers, especially after 1964, and to the two-party system in the Republican Party, the Birchers after 1964, they don't do quite as much or nearly as much. And they commit to trying to demonstrate to Republican leaders that those leaders better pay attention to them, right? They have money, a lot of votes, and a lot of activist energy on the ground. And you see this with Pat Robertson running for president in 1988, right? You see his supporters who are wildly supportive of of Robertson and a real force on his behalf. And slowly, over time and intermittently, Birch ideas do become part of the Republican coalition. And Republican leaders start to court these more fringy, far-right individuals, organizations, and ideas. At the same time though, as I argue, a dynamic takes hold where political leaders like Bob Dole, George H.W. Bush, Reagan even, at the same time that they're courting these folks and paying some lip service to their ideas, the far right is becoming frustrated because their ideas are not really being enacted. Right, and they grow to distrust many of these figures. You know, George H. W. Bush, they view him as like the devil. (laughs) You know, I do think that in these in these sort of either third party challenges like George Wallace, or in these Republican Party challengers, right, losing primary races like Pat Buchanan or Pat Robertson, we see elements of the Birch ideas. Robertson, for example, has these conspiracy theories about the State Department being dominated by anti-American people. And he proposes he's going to basically fire all the State Department employees and put in Americanists. And so you see this Birch legacy, the ideological legacy and the organizational legacy, its approach to politics as being part of this coalition, but a very uneasy coalition. And the fringe and the mainstream... Conservatives also get pulled apart at times. And they were not happy with people like Ronald Reagan for the most part. It's
1: kind of painful to watch your account of Republican leadership first sort of fighting off the Birch ideas and then courting it and then getting subsumed by it. It's just an awful story in a certain way. And you do talk about this a bit in the book, but what do you think is driving the change in the population that seems to have more and more people picking up these ideas in order that they are more of a force? Or do you think that's inaccurate to say it that way?
0: No, I think that's a good question and a good way to put it. Well, I I try to lay out in the book some of the major changes in, in American life from the 1960s to the present, which obviously I can't get into in in too much detail, but I try to sketch out the big themes.
1: Civil rights, women's rights, secularism. Yes. All kinds of economic
0: changes. Yeah. Yeah. So widening economic inequality, a continued frustration on the far right that the Republican conservative establishment is not doing what they want, right? It's not outlawing abortion. It's not getting... A prayer in schools amendment to the Constitution enacted. That frustration. The changing immigration patterns after 1965, increasingly people of color, right, coming into this country, I think, sours a lot of the far right, not the not conservatives per se, not you know, George W. Bush or Reagan, but a lot of the far right on immigration makes them more nativist. The end of the Cold War is a big, big deal because. It opens up space politically for isolationists on the left, but also obviously on the right too, like Pat Robertson, like Pat Buchanan to say, these international institutions that we set up after World War II, these things are corrupt, they're socialistic, and they're sapping our sovereignty. They're controlling the US. And Ron Paul does this too, he makes this argument. And why do we need these things anymore anyway? Because the Soviet Union is no more. So it opens up political space for them to say, the country, the US has been neglected at home and we've put too much blood and treasure overseas. And you know, as Trump said in his closing campaign ad in twenty sixteen, you know, all these international elites, this cabal is sucking dry the the people's money, right? The people's wealth. I think that becomes a potent argument. I would also point to 9-11, which at first tamps down some of these America first anti-interventionist ideas. But once Afghanistan and Iraq drag on and become really unpopular, and, and then you've got the Great Recession and the decline of manufacturing and unions, it creates a lot of turmoil within the Republican Party. and A lot of Republicans sour on George W. Bush's approach. you know, They, they oppose immigra- his immigration reform. They oppose his war in Iraq. They basically run away from him. They oppose the bailout of the banks. Free trade stuff. Yep. Free trade. Free trade yeah. is another uh, big issue. And so the country and the world changes in some really important structural ways over decades that help popularize, it's not the only thing, but it helps popularize a far right, a birchy far right movement that had once been more contained and once been less popular. I think we've seen the results over the past decade. When a lot of people talk about
1: this change, they talk about a number of billionaires, Koch brothers, people like that, media, right-wing media, Fox News, Breitbart places to or, for, for organizing opinion on the right that maybe really weren't, there were radio shows in the 30s that were right wing, but like a, a whole new level of kind of public discourse than that. How much do you
0: think that's part of it? So, yeah, I mean, people, I think you're right. People part, point to dark money, right? And Citizens United, the internet, the rise of Fox News, Alex Jones. These are all important factors too. I mean, I don't think one can kind of dismiss them. Fox News and and Alex Jones and the Koch, I mean, Fred Koch was a founder of the Birch Society of course, but Alex Jones and elements of Fox News, they I would argue were also influenced by Birch ideas and, and books that were very popular with the Birch Society and written sometimes by Birch members or Birch leaders. You can see the influence of the Birch Society in these institutions, but And and this is, I think, an important but. I try to argue in the book, I try to pull back a little bit. And I, I try to argue that these things that you mentioned, the media environment, the internet, these things are tools. And in and of themselves, these tools are insufficient to explain why so many people have become susceptible to conspiracy theories or the great replacement theory. Right about elites who are bringing in people of color to replace the white population, so they can take control of the country. I don't think that the internet alone, or even the the power of the Koch brothers, right, spending unlimited sums. I don't think that those things alone are sufficient to explain why so many Americans seem receptive to some of these ideas. Right. I mean, the internet doesn't magically make people more prone to believe in conspiracy theories or to being kind of isolationist or to being more you know, willing to buy into kind of racist ideas. If what I'm saying makes sense, I think that these are important tools. They exacerbate a lot of these issues, but in and of themselves, they don't explain some of the big changes that we've seen on the American right and in the Republican party. It's not hard to make the connections
1: Between Trump and these kind of ideas, I mean, it's pretty obvious how, and also you explain how he picked up a lot of these threads. But to what extent do you think we understand how he came to where he landed in politics? Because that wasn't really where he was a bunch of years before he ran. And I guess he was always sort of a protectionist. And he takes that theme anti-immigration probably fit pretty well into his mindset. Race. And, yeah. And, and he's, you know, he's got that racist background, but there's something about how he was different than Republicans broadly that gave him a lane. How do you think he did such a good job in a certain sense of hooking up
0: with this groundswell of right-wing movement? I haven't read a lot of the Trump books and biographies that have come out they may have more to say about this. Well, a couple thoughts. First is that we can never forget that Trump's political entree, so to speak, right? His entry, his gateway was the birther conspiracy theory about Barack Obama, which he was pushing in, I think, 2011, 2012. He didn't originate though, that, right? Though he picked it up? Oh, he picked it up. Yeah. He yeah, didn't. Yeah. I don't think he came up with it. Yeah. But he became what some media outlets described as the most prominent, or certainly one of the most prominent backers of this idea, right? This proponents. And that I think gets to a larger point, which is that I think Trump very shrewdly understood and observed. And absorbed the ideas and the rhetoric and the style of folks on the far right, the Tea Party, some of the conspiracy theories, right, that were being promulgated around the time. People like Ann Coulter, some of the anti-immigrant nativist ideas. You talk about a lane, right? A lane that he he assumed. That lane in some ways existed, albeit in different forms, but it existed for many decades, right? Some moments it was sort of smaller than other times, but but the lane existed. And Trump was very savvy at picking up, I think, on that language and those ideas and the birtherism example. And actually, he talked to apparently Jerome Corsi, who was a big conspiracy theorist, was part of uh, the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. Corsi had really soured on George W. Bush and also wrote a book about How I think George W. Bush and and other elites were trying to create a North American Union, right? A a, 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 like a European Union, but with Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. destroying our sovereignty. This sort of conspiracy theory. Roger Stone was a kind of informal, I think, a presence and advisor. And so, you know, Trump uh, and and I think you know people like Ann Coulter and Laura Ingraham, you know. So he he watched and he learned. And he, I think, understood that there was a a way to mobilize, you know, people who were fed up with and Sarah Palin, of course, he watched her, you know, and and she said nice things about his birther conspiracy theory, right, his birther lie. So he understood that the Tea Party was a real force and that he was able to kind of pull these populist strands together. What do you think that you might understand about
1: Trump from having traced the history of the, the Birchers, that, you know, if he's drawing from that heritage, what do you think you might understand about him that other people might not see, if anything?
0: What I try to say in the book, you know, I don't know if this is something that other people do or don't see, but that Trump alone does not radicalize the American right there's so much of a, a almost single-minded focus on him with all the books and all the media attention especially in 2016 and during his presidency but even now with all the criminal investigations it's pretty overwhelming and so it's easy to kind of get wrapped up in all things trump and you know i ain't get that he's obviously important but i think if we do that it's it's easy to lose sight of the context and the history because he is a figure who does not come out of like right out of the 1960s but he does i think operate in a way that has deep roots in first, in the country's history you know going back you know centuries but in particular with this kind of far right this organic and often shifting far right movement and that that this movement as it evolved helped make trump possible if that makes sense. When I look at Trump and when I and one reason I think I wanted to write the book is this idea that you know you don't get trumpism and you don't get maga unless you have at least this kind of 50-60 year history, right, of that we've been talking about. And also that Trump is a more potentially ephemeral or contingent figure. You know, it's easy to say my god, he's always going to be, maga's always going to be on top now. And this thing is never going to end. But, you know, one of the things I try to argue, too, is that MAGA and Trumpism is not bound to remain atop the right indefinitely or forever. When you look at
1: Governor DeSantis of Florida, does he fit in with this pattern so far? How do you place him in the kind of Birch style
0: or not? You don't want to pigeonhole, right, too much, any, you know, anyone – A person, and I think it'd probably be unfair to say, "Well, DeSantis is you know just like a carbon copy, right, of a bircher." But any, I think, major presidential candidate, as DeSantis seems likely to be, has got to adopt some of these MAGA positions, right, and has got to pay attention to this MAGA movement, and therefore, there's a birch pedigree there. So the anti-immigrant sentiment. Right and kind of the hard line sealing of the border, the conspiracy theories about the COVID vaccines, and you know, DeSantis says he wants investigations into quote wrongdoing related to the making of the vaccines. Well, you know, the Birchers were infamous for uh, the theory that the fluoridation of the water, fluoride in the water supply, was extremely dangerous and part of a communist plot. Right, so. You know, there are some echoes. DeSantis, certainly his war on a so-called woke woke culture, that I think would be something familiar to the kind of moral crusades that that some birchers waged, especially in the schools and around education and the question of Americanist teachings in the schools. So I, I do think that whether it's he or any other, I think, major figure, they're going to at least have to pay some attention. And then finally, the isolationist impulse that you know, apparently DeSantis was for support for Ukraine, and now he's against it, right? And so he's making this the sop really to the anti-interventionist wing of his party, which is still, of course, uh, substantial. So you know, there there are certainly a lot of echoes in how he has positioned himself with this far right, Birchie ideological legacy. Seems to me like kind of a fun book to write. <laughs> yeah, I have something to say about that, which is that, uh, so I went into this thing thinking, my God, going down the rabbit hole of these conspiracy theories, and it's going to be just dark and and a little depressing. But it turned out to be more... Fun and I learned a lot more than I had expected going into it, and also just even like the divisions within the Birch Society, right, were really interesting to kind of tease out, right? That some Birch members were appalled when one of the Birch founders, a guy named Ravilo Oliver, started giving speeches after Kennedy's assassination, spinning a conspiracy theory that the U.S. government was holding funeral rehearsals a week before Kennedy was killed. There are Birch members, rank and file, who are writing in to the headquarters saying, this is horrible. This guy is like out of control and he's making us stink. He's gonna hurt the Bircher's reputation for 10 years on. So, you know, there are these interesting kind of tidbits. And then the liberal efforts to contain and discredit and really subvert the Birch society and and subvert the far right, um, I thought was a really interesting.
1: Yeah, the spies from the Anti Defamation League—that was very interesting to read
0: about. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the uh, discovering that the the Anti Defamation League waged a uh, years long, extensive, multi dimensional, and as far as I know, previously undisclosed spy campaign against the Birchers called Birch Watchers, and. It was led by a guy named Isidore Zach, who was actually the head of a counter-subversive army unit based in Boston during World War II. So he was a, a counterintelligence officer, a decorated army officer, expert in counterintelligence, ferreting out spies in the US during the war in the Northeast, based out of Boston, totally incognito. And I think in 1946 or 47, he joins the ADL. And he helps lead and train agents. These agents have code names and they're penetrating the Birch Society in all sorts of ways and digging up information about their finances, membership, individual birchers, credit checks and, and wills, getting into headquarters and assuming false identities, really fascinating stuff and then feeding a lot of this dirt to the press. And it's a pretty interesting kind of war on the far right that, you know, to me at least, resonates in some fundamental ways with our own times and own kind of efforts to dissect, understand, interpret, and also contain the contemporary far right. I know that this book is just coming out.
1: Have you had any response yet from people who've read it?
0: I've had some, yeah. So far, it's been positive. You know, you don't really know until I guess a book comes out and has had a few months to be out, and hopefully reviews come in. The response has been positive. You never want to get your hopes up too much. But yeah, three really excellent journalists at the New Yorker, Jane Mayer assigned it as reading on the New Yorker podcast. And these three journalists picked it up and talked about it, which was really, really nice of them. And the early reviews have been been positive, And You know, a lot of people have said to me uh, that, you know, it's obviously incredibly timely. Yeah, I think so. You know, it it does jump into whether it does that well or not. You know, I guess I'll leave it for others to, to decide. But it does jump into what I think is probably the most important political conversation of our times, which is how did one of the two political parties become overtaken by all the conspiracy theorists and all the other ideas that we've been talking about? And how do you sustain a democracy when one side denies reality, or at least many members do, and they deny free and fair elections and the results? So that question of democracy, survival, and is the country tipping into a civil war and those kinds of big questions, this book, among many others, of course. Uh, but it does kind of jump into that debate and it's also based on you know 21 I think archival collections so you know I do have you know a lot of what I think is new information to share and hopefully a new argument or fresh argument
1: does it make you think differently about extremism in this country
0: having done all this research yes yes because before i don't know if i was aware of this but I came out of the research and came out of the writing more aware of just how embedded in American culture and society extremism is, especially on the right. Because the founders of the Birchers and many other members of the society were, the founders could have been charter members of the American establishment. They were wealthy. They were white. They were Christian and they benefited enormously from the rules and arrangements of the modern economic capitalist system and, frankly, of the New Deal system, right? Put in place. I mean, they were not personally hurting or under siege. One guy, Bill Greedy, was a very important Bircher, and he was the Milwaukee Sentinel newspaper man of the year, the head of the YMCA. They were leaders of the National Association of Manufacturers. Many early birchers especially were, again, they were professionals, respected professionals in their communities, pastors in some cases. So you get a sense that even though their ideas are radical and seem extreme, that a lot of them are supported by institutions and come out of the mainstream of America. And- That, I think, is a disturbing conclusion that I reached, but I I think I have the evidence to kind of suggest it, and it wasn't quite as aware of. And the last thing I'll say is that that idea runs counter to what many critics of the Birchers said at the time, and what many Americans assumed in 2016, and Republicans assumed when they said Trump will never win. Because in the 60s, they said the Birchers, as Harry Truman said, they're so radical, they blow themselves out. And a lot of people believe that. They were just too fringy. But they had one foot in a mainstream establishment camp.
1: Yep. It's a complicated country.
0: <laughs> yes, it is.
1: Do you have a idea of your next project? I know that marketing a book after you write it is a project unto itself. But do you have a next thing that you're writing?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm I realizing more and more that, yeah, it's almost like a, Half time or maybe full time job trying to promote a book. But so I haven't started on anything, but there's a series at Yale called the Jewish Lives series. And I was thinking maybe trying to pitch them on a book. They do short biographies, maybe of a a leader of the ADL from earlier mid 20th century. I don't know if I'm going to write on the far right again. Uh, Someone suggested to me a, a history of the Ku Klux Klan which could be a, a big and interesting project. I don't know if I'm going to do, do a biography. I certainly have not set upon a next project. And, and again, I think one of the biggest questions will be, do I want to continue working on conservatism, the far right, or do I want to take a break, do something else, and then maybe come back to, to it later on? Is there something I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I don't think so. I think we covered uh, a lot of the big themes of the book. We could go on for, for hours, right? <laughs> Definitely. There's a lot to
1: it. It's a very interesting book to read. I commend it to people who might be listening. I appreciate your time today.
0: Anything else you want to say? No, just that I uh, really appreciate you having me on. And it's been my pleasure talking to you. Thank you for the uh, smart questions. Thank you.
1: That was Matt. He's at gspm.gwu.edu slash matt This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at
0: gmail.com.